You can turn to your Bibles in Leviticus chapter 6. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just make sure that you know I don't want to make an assumption. I know um, for, for those of you who were raised in church, you're going to get this, and this is going to be a, a duh, we know that moment. But for some of you, um, even if you were raised in church or you were around it, it may just register for the first time like it did for me in my 20s. You need to understand that in the Old Testament, Every reference <clears throat> to a priest, every reference to the temple, uh, every reference to the tabernacle or the presence of God was foreshadowing, okay? It was a setup for what God was going to do in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we were bought with a price and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like, the Holy of Holies is available to us anywhere at all times. In the Old Testament, there are several references to the priest, okay? And we believe that that is not just a person. In fact, the priest in the Old Testament, we believe is a reference in the New Testament to any person, who has become a child of God. I'll give you a scripture for that. Peter wrote in his uh, epistle, if you will, uh, that we are, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, chosen people, God's own possession. You are royalty and priestly because of Jesus. Like, you don't have to go to a priest, you are one. That's what we believe when you're in Christ in the New Testament. And by the way, that wasn't a shot at anything modern day. I'm talking about Old Testament. They had priests, they had Levitical priests, they had the sons of Aaron, and those people were responsible for what, hear me, what happened in the temple, okay? New Testament, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You house the Holy of Holies in your heart that the presence of God is accessible to you. And you, hear me, you are responsible, the New Testament believer, just as the priests were responsible for what happened in the temple, the physical temple in the Old Testament, you are responsible for what happens in the temple, the physical temple of the New Testament, okay? So with that in mind, with understanding that this is foreshadowing and it's an example of what's gonna come in the New Testament, let's read this passage from Leviticus chapter six, verse eight. The Lord says to Moses, command Aaron and his sons, command the priest, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be upon the hearth of the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Remember that. The fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering Remember, when we come to Christ, okay, he takes off the old and then he puts on a robe of righteousness and then he tells us to put on the armor of God because he wants us to change out of what we were wearing into what he has for us to wear as holy people, royal priesthood, uh, God's own possession. 
So this is foreshadowing. So they, they would do this and then they would take the ashes of the things that God's fire had consumed. They'd take the ashes off of the burnt offering which the fire consumed on the altar and he shall put them beside the altar, okay? Then take off those priestly garments, put on other garments, do what you need to do to carry those ashes outside of the camp to a clean place. Listen, too many people let too many ashes stifle their fire, stifle the consumption of what God's wanted to do. I'm gonna say this, you'll hear me say it again. I don't want it to just be a one-liner that we hit and never come back to. God will deliver you of anything that you allow him to. But sometimes what God has delivered us from, he leaves it up to us to dispose of. God will do the supernatural, the deliverance, the only, the, that only he can do. But when the fire of God consumes those things off of our lives, it is up to us to dispose of them from our lives. We're gonna come back to that. Carry it outside of the camp to a clean place. Verse 12, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. The priest shall burn wood. The priest, the person responsible for the temple, the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. This is the last thing. Verse 13, a fire shall always be burning on the altar. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. Father, right now, God, I thank you so much for what you've done in the hearts and lives of these students that were able to go to camp. God, I thank you for every moment that we've had up to this point in our lives. God, wherever we are in the journey right now, I pray that you would help us to acknowledge your presence in this place, to realize that upon Jesus' death, you tore the veil from top to bottom, and we no longer walk to a place that stores the holy of holies, but you are accessible anywhere that we're willing to build an altar. God, minister to us through this word today. Help us to open up our hearts to receive, and Holy Spirit, give us minds to comprehend and understand what you would deposit into us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a couple of things this morning that the fire could be quenched by. Let me give you a, a few things that may be ashes in your life, if you will. Okay, number one, some ashes. These are obvious ashes. But number one, I'm going to combine these two together, sin and shame. This is not in your notes. Normally these things are in your notes, but uh, this came to me last minute uh, after I had this sermon written on Thursday. So I'm adding this in. Sin and shame. Let me tell you the difference, okay? Sin and, and guilt kind of go together. Sin is something that, that you do, okay? For all have sinned. Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin is something that you do, okay? Shame is your perception of who you are, 
Okay? So sin is an issue of action, and shame is an issue of identity. This is a what that has been done, that I've done, that's been done to me, but shame is how I feel or how I perceive myself to be because of this. For instance, Adam and the woman in the garden were deceived by the enemy. They ate of the fruit which God commanded them not to. And the Bible says that when they ate of the fruit, they were naked and ashamed, okay? Their sin, their action caused them an issue in their identity, okay? God wants to deliver us of the sin in our lives, the areas where we fall short of his glory. He wants to deliver us of those things, cleanse us of those things, set us free from those things. But if we, like a dog returning to his vomit, go back to the things that God just delivered us from, then we are going to stay in the same shame that he wanted us to be free from. The enemy wants you to keep on stumbling back into disobedience, back into a lack of discipline, into partial obedience where you justify less than God's best because he wants you to have an identity crisis because he knows that if you ever figure out who you are in the name of Jesus under the unction of the Holy Spirit that he doesn't stand a chance against you or the influence that God has given you. It's an ash that we've got to pick up the shovel. God is the fire. He delivered us of those things and the ashes remain and all we have to do is get them out. Dispose of them, pick them up, get them out of your camp, get them out of your house, get them out of your vehicle, delete them from your device, do whatever you have to do to stop returning to that which God has already given you relation and revelation from. Sin and shame are ashes that we must dispose of. Let me give you another one. Isolation. Isolation are ashes that will quench the fire. Exodus chapter 6 says, I will make them my people and I will be their God. The New Testament, Paul not only tells us that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but that we're the body of Christ. And that together we make up God's will for the generation in which he has positioned us. We do not have the option of living in isolation. Well, Pastor Chris, I don't have any friends. Then be one. Be what you hope God will send you. Be for somebody else what you're praying that God will send to you. Get out of the isolation of the, the shame of thinking that you have to be alone. Share your secrets. Open up your heart and your life to godly people that are pursuing the same objectives. I'm not talking about just going out and giving yourself away to anybody. That's what, that's what people do that causes them more issues. But you gotta, listen, here in just a few weeks, we'll start signing up for small groups. You need to be in a small group. You need to be in a freedom group. You need to get plugged in to one of these ministries with some of these people 
I got so many different ideas for small groups. I'm making our entire staff go through freedom ministry this semester. If you think you have a call to ministry on your life, guess what? You need to be preparing for it. We have SUM right here, practical ministry site. You can sign up. We hired Pastor Dylan and Sierra King to come on and help us because we are so invested in small groups, freedom groups, and SUM preparation for the calling of God, vocational ministry on people's lives. Pastor Weston is about to get ready to go to next steps. God didn't call you to be isolated. He called you to be empowered. And you do that by connecting to the body of Christ and stop trying to fight this fight alone. When we went to Kenya, the coolest thing that was just physical, it was completely lacked any spiritual uh, essence whatsoever, except for Uh, I got a little bit spiritual over it when it happened. But we were able to watch these five cheetahs at the northern tip of the Serengeti, um, south of Nairobi and Nairoch, Kenya. Uh, We we were there, we woke up early in the morning, we got out on these vans that you could raise the roof on. Come on somebody, you raise the, okay anyway, so we're standing up. And standing up in the vans and, and we spot, we find the cheetahs and, and we just watch them, like we're gonna prowl with them. Like we, we, we watched them hunt a little bit the day before where they weren't really close to anything and they buried themselves in the shade when it got too hot. But we were up early and so were they. Um, and they were prowling around. You could tell they still hadn't eaten because their stomach was still sunk in. When they've just eaten, like they will eat themselves <laughs> it, like we do into distension. Like they'll have a food baby. Like I love, I mean, it's just, I like to be delivered of them too, but I just like to, anyway, so they were, they were up and they're, the, it, cheetahs hunt in an interesting way. Like they don't really prowl and creep. They just kind of walk. Yeah, they just kind of hang out and they're just kind of walking around. And what they do is they, they look for an opportunity. And they look for a member of the herd that is one of two things, either just isolated and detached or out on the edges with one foot in, one foot out. And then they go after that one. For instance, we were watching them and the, there's five of them. Again, this is, this is the only set of five cheetahs. They don't even have a word for it yet. Like science has never seen what's happening with what they call the five brothers. That science has never seen this. Normally cheetahs only hunt maybe in pairs. Maybe there's a third one around somewhere, but they're, they're usually just kind of do their own thing on their own. But these five have connected. Three of them are brothers, like uh, biologically, and then two more have joined them and they hunt together. So they're hunting in the alpha of this group is walking and he just, I mean, does this and just starts walking this way. We didn't even see what he saw, but there was one little impala away from the herd on the ground. Some of y'all are like, oh no, the impala. Okay, just get over it. This is amazing. It's awesome. Okay. The impala. Yeah, they taste good. Okay. And so it was over here on the ground and it was all curled up, you know, it's still bed down from the night before. And the alpha spotted it and started just walking. It's not, it's not even like getting down. It's just kind of walking, walking towards it. And the other four, they, they follow a little bit, but they kind of hang back because they're trying not to spook it. Um, because when the, enemy, when the enemy sees you isolated, he knows he already has you. So he doesn't have to rush it. He's got you. He's got you right where he wants to. 
right where he wants you. And, and the cheetah goes and, and jumps on, I mean, like, gets about 10 yards from the, and they, man, it was amazing. It was like, and I have never seen something move as quickly as this thing was moving that wasn't motorized. And it pounced on top of that impala, and you see legs and stuff going all over the place, and the other three kind of try to jump in, and the fourth one's just laid back, like, y'all go ahead. It was funny. It was like, y'all got it. I'm gonna I'm cheer you on. Woo! And, the impala jumps up and fights off this cheetah. And one of the reasons they don't go for them very often is because they're really quick. That impala jumped off. I mean, it went from zero to 60 in a heartbeat. And the cheetah had already invested all its energy, so it got away. That's resist the enemy, and he will, like, it's really not that difficult. You just resist the enemy, and he will flee. So they're winded and gassed. But listen, you isolate yourself like that, the enemy will attack you. It, he, you're, you're, you're vulnerable. You're easy prey. I, that impala may have gotten away, but I guarantee you, it suffered scars that it may not recover from anytime soon because an attack is an attack. But in Christ, you're covered. And when you're connected to the body of Christ, you're not just covered by him, but you're in the midst where two or three are gathered. And there's that in the midst anointing. Those cheetahs go on from there because they're still hungry. They walk down a hill and back up a hill. And this is hours we're watching these guys. They get to the top of the hill. They're walking in a straight line. It's so cool to watch them just walk around and all the animals kind of disperse. Like, here they come, and they'll stand out. Except for the topi. The topi is like a big, I don't even know. It, it's something like smaller than a horse, bigger than the biggest deer you've seen. And it, and, it, and it has like this blue jean skirt thing right there. They call them the cowboys of the Serengeti. And they're, it's bowed up, man. I mean, this thing is monstrous. You know, look them up. They're really cool. When they see the cheetahs coming, they actually run towards the cheetahs. All by themselves, they run towards the cheetahs and they stomp at them. And they do like that. And the cheetahs don't mess with them. I mean, they've killed a few of them if they had enough energy or hunger enough. But for the most part, they leave them alone. Because when you know who you are and you take a stand against the enemy in that manner, the enemy knows who he's supposed to mess with and who he doesn't have a chance with. Okay, so they just walk right past this little guy that's doing this at him, you know, because he'll fight back. You know, I ain't got time for somebody who's going to fight back. I'm going to go get somebody that won't. And they spread out over five. It's so cool. They were walking like this. And then they spread out over 500 yards. And the one in the front, the alpha, went around one side. And the omega, no, I'm kidding. The other, the other went, went around, the, all the church people got that one. So they went around the back. And there's this herd of zebras. And they're just all kind of watching them. Like, it never went off that like, hey, they're surrounding us. You know, they're just like, doing the zebra thing. And... Uh, it's terrible. It's, it, they surround them, and then all of a sudden, like they all had walkie-talkies, and we're, we're probably four or 500 yards away. We're watching this happen, and they just converged onto these, and there's dust everywhere, and our driver throws that four-wheel drive van in, in. I mean, he throws it in the drive. He cuts across some grass. He stays on the trail because you have to have a permit to not be on the trail. So we're on the trail the whole time. We're on the trail. He stays on the trail, and he's flying across this thing, and you see this dust going, and Aaron, our missionary Aaron DiMaggio is in front of us, and, and Brooks is behind me, and I'm jumping like this. I'm hitting Aaron like, oh, that's so cool, and then they get what they had never seen before. Even the driver, they'd never even had, they didn't have a, a, a registry of it. But these five cheetahs 
picked off a zebra. You know, zebras will fight back too. And a, a large zebra, they converged on this guy that was on the edge of the pack, isolated, away from everything and everybody else. He looked like one of the bigger, maybe one of the more confident. And the, the five cheetahs converged on him. One of them, gra- oh, so cool. I have a video if you want to see it after. I would love to show it to you. It was, it was incredible. And then we sat there for like two hours. I got you, bro. And we sat there for like two hours and, and watched this. Was, That's so sad. No, it's nature. It's okay. Um, we watched this happen. But listen, do you know how many times I have watched, not with the excitement that I, I watched this, but I've watched as a person begins to isolate themselves or as a person begins to get a little too confident, like, oh, I've been doing this for 30 years. I grew up in this stuff. I, I've been serving at this church. Hey, hey, uh, man, where, what do you believe about God? Well, I, oh, I go to New Hope. I didn't ask you where to go to church. How are you doing spiritually? Oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I, I'm Baptist or I'm Catholic or I'm spirit-filled. I didn't ask you what your denomination was or your doctrinal translation was. I asked you how you were doing spiritually. Oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. No, you're not. You're not. You're really not. None of us are. In fact, the only thing that's good about us is that he's in us. And when you stop growing and you start isolating, when you get out from the, the middle, the midst of what God has called you to, and you begin to operate on the fringes, you become a target for the enemy. See, the enemy wants to separate you. He wants to isolate you. But God wants to connect with you. God wants you to experience relationship with him and his people. Number three, the third thing that becomes ashes in our lives is superficial success. This is not in your notes. You got to take this one down on your own. I think of all kinds of things when I'm fussing at God about the fact that he makes my grass grow so fast. <laughs> I thought about this yesterday. Uh, some people like green grass. I like it when mine's brown. Come on, somebody. <laughs> it stays right where it's supposed to. <laughs> so I was, I was out in the yard and I was, I was thinking about this stuff yesterday and, and I just began to think, you know, people used to, they used to hide in the shadows uh, of sin and the secrecy of sin. And, and there's still people that do that, you know, is you, you, the addictions that, that, that keep us from attaching and, and, and becoming what God has called us to, the manipulation or unforgiveness, depression, anxiety. These are the things that teenagers, are, are not even teenagers, young people and, and older people alike growing up and, and they're experiencing that, that spirit, by the way. It's a, it's a spirit of Baal and Asherah. It's the same spirit that the prophets of Baal are experiencing on Mount Carmel when they're cutting themselves to try to get their God's attention. Listen, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. You don't ever have to put another knife or blade to your body to get God's attention. You had his attention before you even knew that you existed. He knew you and knit you together in your mother's womb you don't have to touch that stuff in order to get his substance that's not who he is but we have all these things where we used to hide in the shadows but now listen what we've learned how to do specifically in the United States is we've learned how to hide in the high places we've learned how to hide out in the open and call it success it's superficial but we've learned how to find our solidarity and our substance in temporary things that won't even outlive us in other words ministers have learned how to hide in their pulpits Husbands have learned how to hide in their hobbies. 
Wives have learned how to hide in the midst of other wives that are unhappy in their marriages too, and the only thing that makes them feel better is talking about people that are even more miserable than them. Children have learned how to hide behind their devices. And by the way, this is not a 21st century issue because these things were happening in the 80s when people had Walkmans and earplugs in their ears for the first time. This is not a new thing that we're experiencing. People are hiding out in the open in the high places. We hide behind our vehicles, we hide behind our success, we hide behind our promotion or our position at work, we hide behind our 401k, our financial plans, we hide behind our, our solidarity and things that may, we hide behind things that moth and rust could destroy in an instant and we call things successful and we find our stability, even our spiritual significance in things that will never even last beyond the moment. We are hiding behind the facade of superficial success. We have traded honesty and openness with a highlight reel and materialism. We have traded our independence in Christ and Christ alone for our dependence on the things that the world has to offer. Our marriages are falling apart. Our children aren't on speaking terms. Our friends can't get in touch with us. Jesus is an afterthought on some days and the healthiest thing in our household is our 401k or our plan for the future. We live, some of us live in the house of our dreams but ultimately we're really just living out a nightmare that everybody else is waiting to expose itself and reveal itself. We're hiding in superficial success and the ones that aren't hiding in superficial success are angry or envious of the ones that are hiding but we're all headed in a direction that God never intended for us if we're not careful and we don't recognize that what God has for us is eternal, but what the enemy wants to tempt us with is always temporary. We save pennies, but we're losing our soul. Superficial success is where we invest the most of our time, talent, and treasure and if God asks us for anything else, then we're offended. It's superficial. We need to stop and rebuild our altars. We need to stop going out and going after the things that won't last us past the day. We need to stop spending so much. I'm not telling you to quit your job or go to the mission field full time, give everything that you have in your savings account or your 401, whatever it is. I'm not saying that unless God tells you to do that. And if he does, you better do it. You'll live a life of misery. I've seen so many people who were called, who were equipped, who were plugged in, begin to drift away and get on the outskirts and then begin to find success in superficial things and hide in the, bright day, in the daylight. The altar needs to be rebuilt in our lives. Why? Because our fires are going out. The ashes are building up, but our fire is dwindling. And we have to go to church every Sunday just to try to revive the fire in a service or in an altar that somebody else built for us. We gotta go back to camp every year. We can't wait for momentum, we can't wait for revival, we can't wait for the next big move that God may make because we're hoping with all of our heart that somebody else has built an altar, put a log on, and that God will bring the fire one more time. But what we don't understand is that we need to build our own altars and stop allowing the enemy to put out 
our fires. The altar is not just a place where we first come to God. The altar is a place where we continually come to God. The altar is not a place that's limited to the front of the sanctuary. The altar is not a place that's limited to an event or a movement. The altar is not just a place. The altar is a place that is inside of us if we'll allow God to meet us there. We've gotta get outside of our own comfort, get outside of our own expectations of other people, get outside of expecting God to do for us what we're perfectly capable of doing for ourselves. We have learned how to build strange fires in the sanctuary, at the camp meetings, emotionally excessive fires. And the reason, the way that you can recognize whether they're strange fires or whether they're godly fires or spiritual fires that God truly set is if they outlast beyond the sanctuary. We continue to go out and remain unchanged. And the message today is never go out. Never go out. Don't just be satisfied with a strange fire, a strange sensation that maybe you experienced in a holy place around other people who in Jesus' name are becoming holy. Let that fire outlast your sanctuary moment. Let that fire go beyond the seats and into society. Let your experience in the presence of God impact somebody else's eternity and learn how to build your own altars. An altar is not just a place of salvation. It is a place of salvation that you can respond to, that you can lift your hand, that begins with a prayer. But the altar is a place of stability. It's a place of sanctification. It's a place of restoration, a place of revelation. Let me ask you a question. What is the, the last revelation that God gave you? If you can't answer that question, you're not spending enough time with him. If you're living off of yesterday's revelation, then yesterday's revelation is where you'll continue to live. Today, God wants to do something significant in you. He wants you to remove the ashes of the past, the things that he's already burned off of you. Take those ashes outside of the camp. Put them in a clean place that only Jesus has prepared. Leave them there, walk away from them, and pick up a new log and put it back on the fire and let God bring it to fruition. We need to stop looking for the next movement, the next great thing, the next exciting thing. We live in a generation that follows fads instead of their savior. We live in a generation that will follow emotion instead of the ability to impact somebody else. We live in a generation that is driven by results, not obedience. We should become obsessed with what God has for us no matter where he has it, when he has it, or whom he tells us to have that obedience in front of. We live this time and this day where we're always looking for the next great thing. And I need to give Pastor Johnny, our, our students heard this, but we need to stop looking for the next great thing and begin looking for the opportunities that God wants to use us to make the next thing great. Nobody wants to go to places 
that aren't great. Everybody wants to go to the great place and do the great thing in the place that's already been prepared, but nobody wants to go to an uncomfortable place, a place of sacrifice, a place of surrender, and be used by God in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a part of making it great. Hence, we come to Eunice, Louisiana, and we get to be excited about what God has called this church and these people to do, the foundation that has been built upon. Nobody was standing in line waiting to come and build a church in Eunice, Louisiana. Nobody's knocking down the doors, but they don't see the potential that God sees in the people that he's positioned. God has a plan and a purpose and a calling. He just needs enough saints to come together and enough priests to take responsibility that somebody would remove the ashes of the past and make room for the fire of the future. That's what God wants to do in us and through us if we will rebuild the altars and not be acceptable, not allow the fire to just go out. Greatness begins and builds in the altars of God. Noah built an altar after the wrath of God was complete. Abraham placed his only son, the promise of God, on the altar. He said, you will be a nation. I will bless you. You'll be the father of nations. He didn't even have a child. Then he has a child, and God says, hey, come put him on the altar. Make your promise the log that you place on my altar. Why in the world would God ask Abraham to put his son on the altar? Why would he ask him to put the promise on the altar? Well, one person said it this way. Sometimes, well, God, God will ask us to place the promise on the altar to make sure that we're following him for his presence and not for his promises. That we're following him because of what he's done, not what just what he can do. That we're not following him because of what he could accomplish in our lives. We're following him because of what he's already accomplished in our lives. Not because of what he has the ability to do, but because of who he is and what he's done. He had to put it on the altar. Elijah built an altar on Mount Carmel just to prove a point. Moses built altars throughout the book of Exodus in the midst of Israel's deliverance. Jesus spent more time alone in the mountains at an altar of prayer than he did healing, preaching, saving, casting out demons, or performing any other kind of ministry or miracle. We must make a commitment today to build and rebuild the altars. In closing, Joel chapter two, Joel chapter two, verse 12. Therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, not a part of it, but with all your heart. Turn to me with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, I don't need another excessive emotional display of physical kind. I need you to rend your heart spiritually, not your garments. I don't need a show, I need some substance. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. <clears throat> he relents from doing harm. See, God's desire is to forgive you and heal you, not to do you harm, not to anger and pour out his wrath upon you. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Blow the trumpet in Zion. I've noticed over the years, specifically in the circles that I've been in, 
that some people have a tendency to worship the trumpet over the Lord of the trumpet. Some people have a tendency to wait to worship Jesus until the right song is played. Some people have a tendency to stop worshiping Jesus if the wrong note is played. Some people have a tendency to go to a place and expect to meet with God only in times of services and worship that other people have set up. Well, Chris, I can't play the trumpet. I can't play the guitar. That's okay. It's not yours to play. It's the Lord's trumpet. It's the Lord that we worship in spirit and in truth. It's not in a worship set. It's through a lifestyle. So we can wake up in the morning and we can build an altar. We can go to work that day on the way to school, on the way to the office, and we can build an altar. We can stop five minutes before we go eat lunch and we can build an altar. We can get home in the afternoon we can remove the ashes from our house and then spend time with our children instead of just turning on the TV. We can build an altar before dinner and make sure that our babies and everybody in our home knows who provided everything that we have. We can build an altar before bedtime and the Holy of Holies will enter into our household and affect the hearts within that home. We can build an altar anywhere we are and everywhere that we go. But the Trump and in Zion and consecrate a fast. We're going to fast as a church for one week. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting it on your radar right now. The first week of August, first full week of August, the week following the week after the health fair, which we'd love for you to be involved in, the health fair and the fast. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber. Let the bride go from her dressing room. Let the priests, the people responsible for the temple, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O God. Do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Let the priest, the people stand between the porch and the altar. Let them stand in the gap of the people that need to experience God's presence. Let them bring their own logs. Let them build their own altars. Let them begin to pursue God, but to do it with passion, not in isolation, not in sin, not in shame, but remembering that we were buried with Christ in baptism and we rise to walk in the newness of life that we could look at our salvation and walk in our sanctification that we could take the log of our tomorrow and believe in God not just for his best but for everything that he has to offer let us put the log on the midst of the altar that we were willing to build for ourselves let us pursue God but let us do it passionately. This generation is looking for a purpose. They're looking for more than people that just say they believe in God. They're looking for a people that would show that they believe in God. They're not looking for people that just pursue another God or another idol. They're looking for a people 
with passion and a spirit of excellence as Daniel chapter 6 speaks to that's never satisfied with what's been but knows that they serve a God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He created the universe and he's still creating it today. And if he is the God that we serve, then our creativity is not subject to our last revelation. It can be made new every morning that we're willing to follow him. If we take the time to do something, then do it with passion. In whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord with all your heart. Make it worth it. Let it bother you as much as it bothers God. Let that show bother you as much as it bothers God. Let that music bother you as much as it bothers God. Let that habit bother you as much as it bothers God. Let that lack of discipline, that partial obedience, let that bother you as much as it, well, I don't like to be uncomfortable. Then you'll never be able to be comforted by the comforter. Be willing to be uncomfortable. Do it with passion. I fear that if we fail to be passionate about the things of God, the enemy will give my children something else to be passionate about. And I wanna make sure that they know in whom they have put their trust and they direct their passion to the only person that can fulfill the void that was placed in them at the beginning of creation, to be filled by God and God alone. Number two, guard what we've been given. Guard it. God gave us the gospel. We live in the South. We've heard about the name of Jesus. Some of us heard his name before we were born heard him in his, our mother's womb. And Paul tells Timothy in Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, to guard the good. Guard the good deposited in you. Guard what we've been given. Don't take your salvation for granted. Don't take your sanctification for granted. Get the ashes out of the way and pick up a log and put it back on the altar that you're willing to build with your own hands. Whatever God is calling you to do, guard your eyes, man of God. Guard your heart, woman of God. Guard your body, individual, child of God. Guard the innocence and the purity that Jesus paid for. You were bought with a price. Guard what God has given. Don't take it for granted. Put that log on the fire and finally, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to stop expecting other people to build my altars. I'm going to stop expecting somebody else to plan my worship service. Listen, if the only time I ever worshiped is when I walked in here and stood on the front row, I'd be a hypocrite. If the only time I ever studied God's word is when I put it in a message and shared it with you, I'd starve to death because I'd just be filtering it back out. Listen, you gotta retain something and you can't retain what you keep giving away. You gotta do your part. You gotta build the altar. 
you got to bring the log and God will bring the fire. When you build the altar and you bring the log, God will send the fire. That thing can be watered down in the middle of a drought. Everybody else is screaming around you. The excitement about what is and what has been is louder than your prayer and your passion. But you keep putting rocks on that altar, building that thing up, and you get a log and you call the hand of God to come down and God sends the fire and then you and everybody around you knows that Baal couldn't answer your prayer that Asherah could not fulfill your desires that God most high let he who answers by fire let him be God and when you put that log on he will provide never seen somebody build an altar and God not show up and bring the fire. The log of sin and put it on the fire. Let God deliver you. Get the log of shame, put it on the fire. Let God deliver you. Get the log of isolation. Get the log of intimidation. I call it the log of Eeyore. Quit complaining and whining about what you're not and what you don't have. And let thanksgiving be on your lips at all times. Praise God in the sanctuary and in society. Joy is not something that you have. Joy is something you've been given, that you choose and that you walk in. And if you walk around with a spirit of molly grub, you better pick up that log, put it on the fire, and let God remind you that you are chosen, not forsaken, that you are the head and not the tail. You are above and not between. No weapon formed against. Whatever it is that you need to do, do your part, and God will do his. Put the log on the fire. Build your own altar and let God bring the fire. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Stay here all day. God, let us stop finding fruition in superficial things. God, thank you that whatever we do, we do it with all our heart as unto the Lord. But God, don't let us be satisfied with our work ethic. Don't let us be satisfied with our finances. Don't let us find substance in things that are temporary. God, let us take the log, put it on the fire. Let us remove the ashes that are stifling the fire from burning the way that it could. Whatever those are, once you ask God right there, right where you sit, every head bowed, every eye closed, what are my ashes? What is stifling the fire that you wanna build in my life? What is it that you want to do that I'm not allowing you to? What do I need to dispose of that you've been delivering me from? What log? What altar do I need to build? In the place of something that right now is a distraction for me. What log do I need to put on the fire and let God consume? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Salvation begins with confession. Sometimes that happens at an altar, but it always happens when someone rends their heart before God. Right now, I wanna ask, if you've never received salvation,
if you need to be forgiven and healed. Remember the word of God said in the Old Testament, he has great kindness. He's not here to harm you. He's here to heal you. God wants to forgive you. If you're carrying bitterness and unforgiveness, if you've drifted away from Jesus, and right now today, you don't want to rededicate, you want to really dedicate. If you know that this week, you weren't living for God, but today, right now, you'd like to surrender your life fully to Him.